2: Bruce Gellerman,
1: using little ponds and lakes to soak up huge
2: amounts of carbon in the air. We should be paying attention to environments that are highly carbon active, even though they may be small. The little farm ponds of the world probably bury or sequester as much carbon every year as the world's oceans. I mean, They are small, but they're mighty.
1: Also, ship sonar and offshore drilling make the sea a noisy
3: place. Are the sounds driving whales and dolphins deaf? One of the simplest ways to test this was to use recordings from the 1950s when there were fewer ships in the ocean to ones made in sort of modern time when there was a higher level of background noise.
1: Hearing tests of whales show the din we make at sea forces the marine mammals to shout. Listen to these stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth
5: comes from the National Science Foundation and
1: Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. For the past few decades, farmers have been saying, fill her up with biofuel. But while using farmland for fuel rather than food has been the focus of much debate, less attention has been paid to a more fundamental agricultural issue, water, and what's called the water cycle, which plays a pivotal role in the weather. To forecast what's ahead down on the farm and up in the atmosphere, we turn to Lisa Raffensberger. She originally produced this story for the IEEE Spectrum National Science Foundation program, The Water Energy Crunch, a powerful puzzle.
0: In a tiny windowless office on the Iowa State University campus, engineer Brian Gelder pulls up a map of the U.S. on his computer screen. It's a vision of the future.
6: The the High Plains, especially in parts of Oklahoma and Kansas,
1: we're projecting fractions of the county that may reach up to about 45 percent of the county will be switchgrass in 2022.
0: Nationwide, that adds up to an area about the size of Missouri, newly planted in switchgrass. Behind the change is a law that requires 36 billion gallons of renewable fuel to be blended into our gasoline by the year 2022. Switchgrass is one of the most promising of the biofuel crops.
6: So if we're going to make biofuels, it's not a little marginal change in the landscape. We're going to make a big change.
0: That's Rob Annex, also at Iowa State. His team is creating computer models to predict what this big change may mean for the weather. How do plants affect the weather? Well, when plants breathe out oxygen, it's saturated with water. That's called transpiration. Switchgrass will grow larger than corn on the same amount of land, but it'll also suck more water from the soil and transpire more water. That water will go into the atmosphere and come down as rain somewhere else. It's sunset in rural southern Iowa, and a spring storm is moving in. The switchgrass, dry beige stems about waist high, bends over nearly flat in the wind. This is what large swaths of Oklahoma and Kansas will soon look like, if the models are correct. This field belongs to farmer John Sellers. He's a sort of switchgrass guru.
2: That's the beauty of these native grasses, is they hide all of the nutrients in this plant, in the root, all winter long.
0: Switchgrass has many beauties, actually. It's native, not a food crop, and can grow on marginal land. It's also highly productive. Near where Sellers lives, an average acre of land produces 4.7 tons of corn but could produce five and a half tons of switchgrass, which could someday mean a lot more ethanol produced. But it'll also mean a lot more water. Back at Iowa State University, Rob Annex explains the correlation.
6: There's a nice linear relationship there, that if you want more biomass, you're going to transpire more water.
0: For instance, that bonus growth of switchgrass in southern Iowa, each acre will transpire about 30,000 additional gallons of water into the atmosphere. To see how changing crops could affect the water cycle, the Iowa State team ran a test of their weather model. Chris Anderson is a climate scientist working on the project.
7: We extracted one day in 1980 from it, and that day was February 26th in 1980.
0: And on that day, they asked a simple question. What if almost all of Kansas, Oklahoma, and the Texas panhandle had been growing switchgrass? How would the summer of 1980 have turned out? Anderson points to a blotch of blue covering western Kansas and Oklahoma.
7: And you can see it's drawing from this soil moisture level and reducing the amount of soil moisture down there. In this case, it reduced it by about 5%.
0: And on a different map, rainfall. There's a band of yellow and red from Iowa to Michigan.
7: So the crop is putting more moisture in the air, it's going downwind, and it's creating more storms.
0: The team is currently running models of an alternate past, how weather would have looked over 25 years if switchgrass had covered as much land as it's projected to in 2022. They expect to see more rainfall downwind of the switchgrass. They also expect more intense rains, the kind that cause erosion and flash flooding. So should we be worried? When you ask Rob Annex, he pauses. It all
6: depends on how we decide to make biofuels and The reason that I'm hedging and saying it that way is that there's lots of different ways to grow biomass.
0: Using agricultural waste, like corn, leaves, and stalks, won't require more cropland or water. And some places have enough water for new crops. Annex hopes policymakers carefully consider the larger picture of biofuels and the water cycle, because it's a complicated one.
6: What we do on the landscape, how we use our land affects the weather, but it affects the weather in other places.
0: As homesteaders in the American West once said, rain follows the plow. Though now we're learning it may follow from a longer distance than they ever realized. For Living on Earth, I'm Lisa Raffensberger.
1: That report came to us by way of the IEEE Spectrum National Science Foundation program, The Water Energy Crunch, a powerful puzzle. Something that might surprise you, it certainly surprised scientists. The world's freshwater lakes, streams, ponds, and swimming holes store and release immense amounts of climate-changing greenhouse gases, especially methane, which is one of the most potent. Scientists found a lot more of it than they expected and published their findings in Science Magazine. John Downing is one of the co-authors of the article. He's a limnologist at Iowa State University in Ames. And Professor, welcome to Living on
2: Earth. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk about this. So what's a limnologist? Uh, A limnologist is a scientist uh, that studies inland waters, uh, continental waters, lakes, ponds, rivers, and streams. Well, for this study for science, you studied a lot of them. I think it was 400, yeah, 474, I think, is the number that we finally ended up with. A large number of systems across the world, but there are millions of lakes and ponds, and those are hopefully representative of them.
1: So what did you find? You you, you
2: were looking for what, specifically? So we were trying to see how much methane, a really important greenhouse gas, might be emitted by inland waters because it hadn't been included in really any global budget.
1: So where does the methane in freshwater
2: bodies come from? Basically decomposition of uh, organic matter that flows into them or organic matter that's created within them.
1: So you found that freshwater bodies of water have a lot of methane stored in them, and that they're releasing a lot of it. How much are we talking about here?
2: Well, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the numbers because they're usually measured in things like pedigrams, which is kind of an immense amount of material. But it's equivalent to about 25% of all the carbon that's taken up and sequestered by terrestrial environments worldwide. And terrestrial environments
1: is land environments of which these lakes and ponds are part of.
2: Right. Global ecologists have sort of divided the world into three big chunks, and one of them's the ocean, another is the continents, and the other is the atmosphere. What we've been finding over the last four years or so is that when we consider the lakes, the wet part or the aquatic part of the continental mass. So, Professor, how much of the world's uh, surface is freshwater? It looks to be about 28 to 3% right now. About five years ago, the estimate was about 1.5% of the land surface made up of lakes and ponds.
1: So how is it that uh, we didn't know where, I guess, half the world's freshwater was before not too long ago?
2: A group of scientists and I uh, working at uh, the National uh, Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis put together uh, a lot of very exacting uh, analyses of aerial and satellite photos and began to find that there were many more small systems, uh, small lakes and ponds than anyone had suspected.
1: So to quote former President Bush, you misunderestimated underestimated these
2: lakes. Well, I didn't. Um, I was pretty convinced that it would be there, as was David Basviken and Lars Tronvik and the other scientists who worked on this project. So what we've failed to do really was to consider a piece of that global budget.
1: When you talk about a global carbon budget, you're talking about the amount of carbon that's kind of stored and and, uh, released.
2: That's right. And it's really important to know what all the major sources and sinks of carbon are. It's sort of equivalent to running your own household budget, calculating all your sources of income and expenses, and forgetting that the insurance company takes out an amount out of your account every month that's equal to 25% of your household income. Kind of a big mistake. Even a limnologist uh, would know enough economics to make that work better.
1: So what happens now with this information? How does it help us or does it hurt us?
2: Well, I think uh, it points up a few things. It makes me feel as if we really need to pay closer attention to these inland waters and what they're doing because they are so active in everything they do that the fact that they may be only 3% of the land area of the planet is less important than their great activity. So paying attention to inland waters is very important. And then I'd say if we've made this kind of an error here, What other pieces of this puzzle are missing? What else might we need to fill in? And we should be paying attention to environments that are highly carbon active, even though they may be small.
1: So good and bad things come from small packages. (laughs)
2: That's, in fact, true. I mean, they are small, but they're mighty. The little farm ponds of the world probably bury or sequester as much carbon every year as the world's oceans. And the lakes and sort of moderately sized water bodies of the earth sequester four times the carbon uh, that's buried by the ocean every year. So we have to look for not just big and obvious uh, sources and sinks of carbon, but look at some of those that may be small, but highly active.
1: Professor Downing, I was looking at uh, your webpage and you quote Thoreau.
2: Uh, yeah, I've got it right in front of me. It's one of my favorites. It goes, a lake is the landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is Earth's eye, looking into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. Thoreau is a hero, of course, of mine, and as he is most ecologists.
1: It's Earth's eye, but I'm wondering um, now with your research if it's uh, Earth's black eye.
2: Not at all. We shouldn't ever consider that lakes are bad. The rates that were measured by Bostwikin and this crew of scientists from around the world, um, these rates of methane emission are natural and have been there a long time. Um, Maybe if we have a black eye, it's because we haven't paid attention to some of the Earth's most carbon-active environments, and we need to be doing that.
1: Well, Professor Downey, it was a real
2: pleasure. I really appreciate it. Oh, what a pleasure for me to talk about this work! Thanks for asking me.
1: John Downing is a limnologist at Iowa State University in Ames. ahead, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've gone extinct? For an answer, stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And now, for something completely different. It's party time at LOE.
8: I'm completely blown away by the turnout.
9: I've been amazed at the number of people that have shown up.
1: Take out your glitter makeup, your acid wash denims, and don't forget your wallet. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. This is a carrot mob. Carrot Mob is a way for environmental activists to capitalize on capitalism, using the power of their purse to persuade businesses to go green. For example, getting a liquor store to put in energy-saving light bulbs.
9: CFLs and bourbon together at last. It's about time, right? Somebody had to do it.
1: That somebody is Brent Shulkin, founder of Carrot Mob. Forget sticks and protests to get companies to do the environmentally right thing. Shulkin says, why not reward businesses with a Carrot Mob?
10: A couple of years ago, I was in San Francisco, and I got on my bike and rode around my neighborhood to 23 convenience stores. And at every store, I went in and I said, what I'm going to do is bring hundreds of people to one store on one day, and we're just going to spend a ton of money. And so what I asked was, what percentage of this revenue we would bring will you set aside and reinvest in energy inf- efficiency upgrades to your store? Finally, one store said, I'll give you 22% of everything you guys would spend. So then I turned around and I went to the community, you know, put up some flyers and spread the word on the Internet and said, everyone come down. And then on this, the day of the carrot mob, hundreds of people showed up at this convenience store. There was a line around the block. When it was all over, you know, their, their typical daily revenues, maybe $1,800, a little more than that on the weekend. We brought in $9,200 in just a couple hours. And in exchange, they took a big chunk of that money and did a full lighting retrofit of their store to be more energy efficient. So who organizes a a carrot mob? Well... What happened after that first campaign was this video spread like crazy. And we just started getting emails from people around the world who said, hey, I saw what you did in San Francisco. That was great. Can we do it? Will you support us? So now we've grown to a global network of people and we've seen organizers in Helsinki who organize a mob of a nightclub. Bubble tea stand in Singapore and Thailand. We've seen a school that banned plastic bags at a grocery store and, and all across the U.S. And, and the biggest countries are actually Germany and Finland. They are just nuts for carrot mob. I guess you call it a, not a boycott, but a boycott. Yeah, I mean, carrot mob is basically the opposite of a boycott. You know, in a boycott, you say, all right, we are not going to spend any money at this business until you change. But a Carrot Mob, you say, we're going to ask all of you businesses to compete and say, who is willing to do the most uh, socially responsible thing, whatever we ask? And whoever wins, we're all going to come and spend money. We're going to mob you with spending. How do you ensure that the
1: company or the business that says it's going to do something socially beneficial actually does something?
10: I used to worry about that. I thought it was sort of the Achilles heel of this uh, movement. I don't anymore. And the reason is that almost all of these businesses are in it, some are in it for the cash, but a lot of them are in it for the reputation, the long-term value of being seen as sort of this great business in the community. And if you're in it for the reputation, you you know how harmful it would be if you then said, ha just kidding, we didn't follow through, suckas, <laughs> we just haven't had any problems. And we've now had 112 or so campaigns, and there's never been a problem with it. So I, I don't worry about it anymore.
1: So you've had over 100 carat mob uh, campaigns. Any quantification of the results?
10: Well, yeah, most of the campaigns so far have been focused on energy efficiency. The best estimate we have is that I think we've saved around 18 million kilowatt hours of electricity Uh, but you know this is not our own exact data this is sort of just some projections we have so uh, as we raise money we're going to be building out some better tools for measuring our impact
1: does this work um, principally with small stores or could you use it for big box stores as well
10: ah, well, you're you're barking up the right tree. So we want to make an enormous network of people. You know, I'm not going to be satisfied with a million people. I want, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 million people. The reason is that if you can get that many people in this network, you could do Coke versus Pepsi, you know, Nike versus Reebok. You can start retrofitting and changing policies at some of the, the world's most powerful companies.
1: Actually I could see this uh, being a lot of fun. You have these mobs swarming to a, a store and it turning into, you know, really kind of a pleasant community activity.
10: Yeah, and you know, one other sort of fun idea that I, that it's I've been mulling is: imagine Super Bowl 2014 comes along, and all across America we're having these big Super Bowl parties, as Americans do. And what if we said, okay, we're all gonna buy either Miller Lite, Coors Light, or Bud Light for our Super Bowl parties? Which is gonna be a whole lot of beer. Which of those companies is willing to have a, a wind-powered brewery, or you know, maybe it's maybe it's a, a new maternity leave policy? We could ask for anything. And so. You know, that's the type of campaign. I mean, how fun would that be? Who wouldn't join in on that, on that sort of campaign? And, and that's, you know, I think there's such a broad appeal to this movement. It's so easy to get involved that I hope that we can have everyone join the network and we can grow to the point where those things are possible.
1: Well, Brent, thank you very much. It's fascinating.
10: Well, thanks, Bruce. I'm glad I was able to, to spread the word a little bit.
1: Brent Shulkin is founder of Carrot Mob. To find out more, visit our website. LOE.org There is an unusual sign at the entrance to a farm in Newport, Rhode Island, warning "Biosecure Area. Absolutely no trespassing. Please leave immediately." But Living on Earth's Jessica Lee Smith decided to ignore the sign, got an invite, and has our report from behind closed gates.
11: A
12: stately llama stands guard atop a hill. He's protecting an unusual herd of goats and sheep from lurking coyotes. Among them are hairless-faced Gulf Coast sheep, Hog Island sheep with curled horns, and Tennessee fainting goats, an apt name since when startled they stiffen and fall to the ground. These aren't ordinary barnyard beasts. These animals are all heritage breeds. Sarah Boley, the livestock manager for the SVF Foundation, says the organization's mission is to protect these oddball animals from extinction.
5: We focus on critically endangered breeds that are based in North America that were important to the founding fathers when they started the country.
12: It's a sunny day and a crisp breeze rolls in from the Atlantic Ocean, barely a mile away. Bowley takes me to visit the farm's newborn goats.
5: Kids! <laughs> my kids! Baby goats are just so much fun. <laughs> you know, compared to the other species, they can just be so entertaining to watch. A bold kid named Rob comes up and sniffs my microphone.
12: Rob is an Arapawa goat with shaggy fur on his
5: legs and a badger-like striped coat. Boley explains just how extraordinary he is. We had these two kids born about a month ago, and they're embryo transfers that were collected and frozen last season. And then this spring, we thawed them out and implanted them into their two surrogate moms. And they were born about a month ago. Rob was a frozen embryo
12: because Arapahoe goats are critically endangered. In the last census two years ago, the Arapawa Goat Breeders USA found a population of just 318 individuals worldwide. Boli says these animals are worth saving, not only for their friendly personalities, but also for their disease resistance, a trait that could come in handy in the future if illness strikes more popular goat breeds. Part of the process of saving these endangered species is using a more common breed as a surrogate mother. In this case, Rob's mother was a common dairy goat, a Saanen. This energetic kid is the product of a highly scientific lab procedure, not unlike human in vitro fertilization. Embryos are harvested from pregnant female goats and brought to the lab to be frozen. Boley and I head out of the barn and go to the lab where the scientific process happens. Dr. Dorothy Roof, the lab supervisor, greets us at the door and shows us around.
11: In a way, how the lab is laid out tells you kind of the process of what we do. The lab has three rooms. In the first room,
12: Dr. Roof places the embryos into a special freezer that steps down the temperature half a degree a minute until they reach minus 35 degrees Celsius. Once they're frozen, she plunges the embryos into liquid nitrogen to preserve them.
11: Once they're in liquid nitrogen, as long as they stay in liquid nitrogen... The estimates of how long they survive, hundreds of years. This is important,
12: as scientists predict large biodiversity losses in the next few centuries. We move into the next room where tissue biopsies and serum samples are collected from each embryo.
11: The serum will contain all of the antibodies that the animal has in its blood. So in a way it's a running readout of the pathogens they've been exposed to during their lifetime. In
12: the final lab sit four massive stainless steel tanks. Each tank is filled with about four feet of liquid nitrogen. They act as large insulated thermoses for the embryos. Roof opens up the tanks. And vapors
11: billow out. It's always the picture that everyone (laughs) wants to take when they come here is the the liquid nitrogen vapors. It is pretty uh, spectacular.
12: But all you can see is the vapor. So Dr. Roof sucks it off with a hose Inside the tanks there are tiny red straws filled with embryos, each labeled with information about its biological parents. The whole process is closely monitored to make sure that the embryos will be viable for hundreds of years.
11: It's kind of reverse archaeology. I mean, I try to think to myself what it would be like for me 100 years from now, looking back at the person who made these embryos into the tank. I also think about what would happen if it really were like an archaeological dig and all the records were lost.
12: Right now, the SBF Foundation is focusing on 25 critically endangered breeds of goats, sheep, and cattle. Their goal is to freeze 300 embryos of each breed.
5: We go over there after that As
12: Sarah Bowley and I leave the lab, she talks about the loss of animal diversity. Livestock breeds are going extinct at a rate of about one per month. Saving them is important, she says because many of these animals can act as scientific models for human diseases.
5: For example, there's a population of Jacob sheep that are a perfect model for Tay-Sachs disease in people. There's a pig breed, Osaba Island hog, that is a perfect model for type 2 diabetes in people.
12: Also, Boley says, keeping these embryos around might one day solve a global problem.
5: So if there's a disease outbreak, or if there's a certain texture or flavor of meat that's desired, or you know, any other genetic combination that these animals can solve, we want to have their genetics available, even in just a frozen form, so that they can be reawakened and brought back hundreds of years from now.
12: For now, the embryos slumber in their deep freeze and wait until they're called upon to resolve some crisis. And who knows? In the future, the fate of the human food supply might just be resting on their horns. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith in Newport, Rhode Island.
1: There are ships in bottles now there are schools out of bottles in granados guatemala kids are learning the three r's reading writing and recycling they've learned how to turn plastic bottles into walls for their schools laura cutner from portland oregon helped make it happen she served in the peace corps in granados in central guatemala and worked on the project
13: When I first arrived, I was working in the mornings with this elementary school, and there was this metal frame that was just sitting there. And the principal asked me, she said, Can you help us find funding to finish these two classrooms? This frame was built for two extra classrooms. And I said, Well, absolutely. And about that same time, I had heard about the work of a fellow volunteer. Basically, they turn plastic bottles and inorganic trash. Into building blocks. It was al- almost an accident. I was hanging out at recess with some of my students and I was drinking a Coca Cola and it was in a 600 milliliter bottle. And I realized that the bottle was the exact width of the metal frame that was sitting there. And so I, you know, a little light bulb went off in my head and I thought, well, maybe we could apply. This construction technique of building out of bottles with this metal frame, and perhaps it will be, you know, a more cost-efficient way of finishing these classrooms.
1: Are these no-deposit, no-return bottles, or are these bottles that you have a deposit and you get money for?
13: Well, there's no recycling system, unfortunately, in this part of the country Guatemala definitely as well as you know many countries around the world has you know issues with waste management. There did exist the mentality of not being necessarily aware of how long it takes trash to decompose. And so a lot of times the plastic bottles and trash was just thrown on the ground and it was just sitting there.
1: How many bottles did you have to collect?
13: We calculated that we need to collect six thousand bottles, but we end up using over eight thousand.
1: Woo, that's a lot of bottles.
13: Yes, lots of bottles. Where'd you get them from? Um, We went to all of the local schools asking for their collaboration. So essentially every student collected and stuffed at least five bottles. And these have to be stuffed to the max. They are called eco bricks. And we walked around with the students and we literally cleaned the entire town. We picked up so much trash we had to go to neighboring suburbs to find more trash.
1: How much trash does this equate to?
13: Each bottle, and it varies a lot based on, you know, what kind of inorganic trash. All the trash has to be organic. We had all of the local stores donate all their plastic trash. You can't use any paper or cardboard because that decomposes quickly. You know, on average, a bottle weighs about a pound. So if you, you know, 8,000 pounds is for one school.
1: So you picked up the bottles, you picked up the trash, you stuffed the trash into the bottles and then built a wall.
13: We built four walls. It's a very simple process. Essentially, you have your frame and you start on one side of the frame. You have to lay out either you know, you staple chicken wire to one side, or what we did because we used metal was we tied with metal wire the chicken wire to one side first and made it really, really tight. And then you start on the inside and you are stacking the bottles um, against the first layer of chicken wire um, vertically and then horizontally, and then you're slowly closing it over with another layer of chicken wire and then tying both layers of chicken wire together. So you kind of encage the bottles. And then you put three layers of cement on both sides. After that, you can't even tell that it's built out of bottles. It looks like it was built out of cement block.
1: Guatemala is a very active earthquake area. Can these withstand
13: earthquakes? Absolutely. Because of the chicken wire and the way that it's built, it's actually a little more flexible in earthquake territory than cement block.
1: So what's the potential for this kind of method in other parts of the world?
13: This has huge potential. Since our project has been completed, um, I have received email inquiries and questions from all over the world, from Haiti, from the Philippines, from Africa, people that are working and want to turn trash into building blocks. But we always say that these projects, the the actual structure, that's just one aspect of it. The real long-term goal of these projects is the educational aspect to it, because this is not a long-term solution to trash management in any way, but just the educational aspect and, and learning how long it takes trash to decompose and what you can do with trash and how much we produce. We produce enough trash to build buildings with it and also bringing communities together it's in every sense of the word a win-win
1: well laura thank you very much really appreciate it
13: thank you for having me
1: former peace corps volunteer laura kuttner talking to us from our home in portland oregon Coming up, waves so big they swallow ships in a single bite. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore
4: Foundation, Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change, and the Sierra Club, helping students, workers, entrepreneurs, and families create a healthy and prosperous clean energy future. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International.
1: You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. For us, this is the sound of the sea. But creatures that live under the waves have a totally different soundscape, one that human activities have made increasingly noisy, and the cacophony could be disturbing sea life that depends on sound to survive. Living on Earth's Ike Sris prepared
7: our report. Jacques Cousteau called the ocean the silent world, and he gave that name to his 1956 underwater documentary, Le Monde du Silence. But while it's mostly silent to us, to its regular residents, the ocean can sound like a busy street corner. And research from two ocean scientists shows us the significance of sound in the sea. The first study comes from David Mann, an associate professor of biological oceanography at the University of South Florida. He recorded these bottlenose dolphins around Tampa Bay.
9: Yeah, it's an underwater recording, middle of the night, everything you hear in there is completely natural sound. There's a dolphin whistling at high frequencies, and then there are fish sounds, which people, most people don't know about, that are lower frequencies. So it sounds like... You know the fist sounds are like ba 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 ba, and so it's interesting for people. I think for a number of points. One is that you know there's a lot of animals in the ocean using sound for communication. Man says every dolphin has its own signature whistle. That's how a baby dolphin identifies its mom through all the other calls around it. Just like if we met and I'd say hi, I'm Ike. For example, in the bottom of those dolphins, this whistle is basically you know saying like Bob 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 or whatever. You know my name. Whistles aren't just to identify which
7: dolphin is Bob. They also tell them where they are and what's around.
9: Being able to hear is vital. For dolphins, deafness is disorienting. In the dolphins' world, if you even have a 40 decibel hearing loss, your range of echolocation is going to drop by a hundredfold. And that's basically making the animal blind. For five years, David Mann would rush to the beach whenever he heard of a stranded dolphin. And he'd give the dolphin a hearing test. It's, yeah, this is completely non-invasive. It's the same exact test that they use with human infants to test for deafness. And so the one difference is, you know, we don't have uh, headphones per se for dolphins. We use what we call a jawphone, which is simply a small speaker in a suction cup. So the dolphin would have a speaker on its jaw and a suction cup on the top of its head to monitor brainwaves.
7: The brainwaves show up as a line on a little portable screen. You know, they'll play a sound to you like boop, boop, boop. In a healthy dolphin, the brain waves
9: go wild at that tone. But a lot of the time, David was staring at flat lines. You know, the first time we thought our equipment wasn't working because it's basically you're not getting any electrical response off the brain when you play sound to it. But then we started seeing this more, you know, more than one time. And we also had animals at the same location that had normal hearing. So
7: over the five years, man and his team conducted these tests they found that more than half of the bottlenose dolphins that beached themselves had significant hearing loss. But he
9: thinks that just might be part of being a dolphin. Deafness in humans is not uncommon, and um, there's no reason to suspect that dolphins are going to be any different than humans. But there's another possibility. Human-made sounds might be hurting their hearing in ways we don't understand. If you start running, you know, hundreds or thousands of ships on the same shipping channel back and forth all the time and you raise the background noise like 30 or 40 decibels on average continuously, now you're affecting lots and lots of animals. And it's happening out in the middle of the ocean, so it's a lot actually harder to figure out what the effects are.
7: David Mann isn't the only scientist wrestling with that question. So is Susan Parks.
3: So that's the the joy of science.
7: Parks is an assistant professor of acoustics at Penn State. She studies how ocean noise might affect one of the ocean's largest and rarest inhabitants. The right whale.
3: Right, yeah. So, right whales are highly endangered, and there are about 400 left in the North Atlantic right now.
7: They're so rare now because they were the right whales to hunt, and man is still the danger.
3: These whales are living in an area that's highly influenced by human activities, similar to animals that might live in a city. Most things that people do in the ocean uh, either intentionally or inadvertently produce sound as a byproduct. The one that we think about a lot with the species I study are the sounds generated from commercial shipping. It's only been about 100 years that these ships have been in the ocean. And then if you look at the number of ships, the number of ships has been steadily increasing, particularly over the past 40 or 50 years.
7: Parks wanted to know how that had affected right whales.
3: One of the simplest ways to test this was to use recordings from the 1950s when there were fewer ships in the ocean to ones made in sort of modern time when there was a higher level of background noise.
7: Go to the tapes. The first was recorded in 1956, the same year Jacques Cousteau called the ocean the silent world. The tape, made by William Cheville of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, is a little scratchy. Fifty years later, Parks made another recording of right whales at the Bay of Fundy, where Maine meets Canada.
3: The main difference between the two recordings, and and if you listen to it, you can hear that the the sounds produced by right whales in the 1950s, there's actually been a shift upwards um, of about 30 hertz for this species.
7: What's that, like uh, an octave?
3: Uh, It's a little less than an octave, yeah.
7: So today, are right whales more falsetto?
3: (laughs) Well, it's it's all still pretty low frequency.
7: So they sing higher to cut through the ship noise. And they also sing louder. As we ratchet up our volume, so do the whales. But perhaps there's a limit.
3: It's possible that when the noise level exceeds a certain threshold, they just stop calling.
7: And Park says that could make the lonesome leviathans even more solitary.
3: Individual right whales don't make a lot of calls. They're relatively sort of the strong, silent type. In an endangered population, this is particularly of concern because there are fewer individuals out there. And so they're in the same ocean, and they need to find each other to mate and to um, relocate their offspring.
7: But how these elusive whales will actually cope with an increasingly noisy world is still an open question.
3: So you've sort of gotten to the heart of why I actually, why I study whale communication. Um, We don't know.
7: But we do know that the ocean never was Cousteau's silent world. Life in the ocean has always been noisy. But now there are 4 billion more people than there were in 1956. With all the decibels human trade and industry generate in the ocean... Navigating through the din is the 21st century challenge for sea life. For Living on Earth, I'm from the Roger.
1: Monster waves that sink ships, leaving not a trace or a survivor, are the stuff of myth, legend, and Hollywood. But turns out they're real. In fact, satellites and ocean tracking instruments show that monster waves are not that uncommon. They strike a ship about once every two weeks. Susan Casey writes about them in her book, The Wave, in pursuit of the rogues, freaks, and giants of the ocean. And she talked with living-on-Earth Steve Kerwood.
8: Those ships are hitting rogue waves in storm conditions, you know, waves that can be three and even four times bigger than the seas around them. So if you've got 50-foot seas, you can easily get a 100- or 120-foot rogue wave and um, scientists really had to reckon with the fact that these waves do exist.
14: In your book, Susan Casey, you tell the story of a scientific uh, ship in the UK that documented these giant waves. Could you tell us that story now, please?
8: Yes, the RRS Discovery. I read about this, and I had to read the article twice to believe what I was reading. was a group of scientists from Britain and Scotland who were out in the North Atlantic And they were hit by about 48 hours worth of 60, 70, 80, 90, and even 100-foot waves, and they were trapped out there in these waves and almost didn't survive them. And what was great (laughs) not so much for them, but for everyone else, was that the ship had all kinds of -of state-of-the-art scientific instruments on it. So it was perfectly equipped to capture every measurement of what the ocean was doing. And what they found out and eventually published a paper about was that the models, the meteorological models and the wave models, had not predicted these waves, that they shouldn't have been there, and that in fact the kinds of really extreme and almost freakish seas that had sort of been seen as sailors' tall tales really did exist. There was d- direct proof there.
14: So, what's a really big wave?
8: Well, in the book, I talk about a wave that happened in 1958 in a very spooky area of the Alaskan coast that was 1,740 feet tall. That's a big wave.
14: Wait a second. That's the that's the old world. <laughs> that's the Empire State Building.
8: I think plus some. That is the biggest wave that has been measured accurately. And the reason they were able to know exactly how big that wave was was geologists were later able to go in and measured where the trees stop. It's like a razor came along and just shaved them all off. And when they were up there looking into that, they found out that this had happened quite regularly in this bay.
14: Now, this is all related to landslides and earthquakes, that sort of thing.
8: Yes, and in the book, I talk about several different types of giant waves. In that case, it was kind of a localized tsunami the most dramatic waves that we have on Earth are caused by big landslides either on the land that then fall into the water or below the sea and cause tsunamis. And they can be provoked by earthquakes. They can be provoked by a volcanic island collapsing. But, but those are the really dramatic ones. Those are the ones that rewrite the maps.
14: Now, one thing you mentioned in your book is that the average height of ocean waves seems to be increasing. Why is that and uh, should we be worried about it?
8: Well, I think that the ocean has always been, you know, a very powerful and volatile place. And the increase that seems to be happening in waves has to do with a number of different effects. One of them is are these overarching climate patterns. And these are really poorly understood things because we haven't had... The, the ability to measure, you know, long-time climate patterns because we haven't been doing it for very long and we haven't even been around that long when you think of geological time. So the, that, the increased wind that comes from a warmer ocean and potentially stormier environment just caused by climate change. So I don't know about worried, but aware, certainly.
14: So let's talk about climate change and big waves. You list several things in your book that uh, could change wave patterns. For one thing, you say climate change could increase the frequency of earthquakes. How's that?
8: This is what happens. When glaciers melt, they they tend to change distribution of weight. It's either more or less weight on the land or on the seabed. And it's it's a pretty dramatic amount. Like if the sea goes up even a small bit in terms of sea level, that adds up to so much weight. And that then weights the tectonic plates of the earth and various fault lines differently. They call it isostatic rebound. And what they suspect is that at the end of the last ice age, when the glaciers were sort of pouring into the ocean and, you know, parallels to what we've, we've got now with rapidly shrinking glaciers, there was a flurry of earthquake and volcanic activity. You know, when things are moving around, when there's sediment or earthquakes below the water or even on land and falling into the water, that will, that can equate to a tsunami.
14: So, how likely is it that uh, science is going to be able to predict big waves or should we just, uh, you know, chalk them up to the unpredictable nature of nature?
8: Well, I think nature is always going to defy our attempts to completely dissect it in any sort of rational logical way because chaos and and random events are really a part of it's complexity but there are some very very smart people trying to make better climate models and better wave models and to better understand how we can be in harmony with these potentially destructive or certainly incredibly powerful forces and that work just goes on continuously and when you have something like the tsunami of 2004 and a you know tragedy like that or the the sort of amazing power that was witnessed as the storm surge came over the levees in Hurricane Katrina, I think it shows how important it is going to be for us to be able to understand this in such a way that we can we can live with it. Part of
14: your book you devote to a search for, I guess, a surfing a holy grail, what, to ride a 100-foot wave? Yes. Why would someone want to ride a 100-foot wave? It sounds like death wish to me.
8: I would definitely agree with you. I wanted to find out. I... Uh, saw a 20-foot wave uh, years ago and had never forgotten how terrified I was when I saw it, and somebody was riding it, and uh, I didn't understand how we could survive it. And then a few years later, they started toe-surfing, and I saw pictures of some of the characters in my book riding 60- and 70-foot waves, and I was absolutely riveted. I couldn't understand how people didn't die every time they went out.
14: You need to explain toe-surfing.
8: Toe-surfing was invented in 1995 as a means to ride bigger waves Waves that are bigger than, say, 30 or 40 feet are not possible for us to paddle into. They're they're just moving too fast. I described it in the book as trying to catch the subway by crawling. You're not going to get it. It's just going to go thundering past you. So the biggest, most interesting waves for some of the surfers were in what they called the unridden realm. And they eventually, through sort of painful trial and error, figured out that they could use jet skis to pull a partner onto the crest of the wave. And it could be, theoretically, it could be any size wave. It could be a 100-foot wave, but they were doing it with 60 and 70-foot waves with success.
14: This sounds absolutely nuts. A jet ski is not the easiest thing in the world to handle. Now you're going to have this 60 feet above, you know, there's a big hole at the bottom of that wave.
8: Well, and not to mention that that water is, you know, 800 times denser than air. So when it comes crashing down on your head, it does some damage. And as I said, it was a very painful trial and error process.
14: How many people get killed doing this?
8: You know, every so often somebody will get killed or injured very badly. Or sometimes I think what happens a lot more often is they get scared to the point where they never want to do it again. I asked a lot of them to describe to me that what it feels like to be held down by a wave that big. And it's, I think it's a truly fearsome experience. And some of the best surfers that I encountered and interviewed said, you know, they had instances where they really, as one server put it, saw the mandala. And they didn't want to go back, right back out there and do this thing that they loved. It took years to feel like they were in control again.
14: In other words, they thought they were about to die. They were drowning.
8: Yeah. And, and most of them do have that experience.
14: And you feel fine going to sea knowing that these waves are out there?
8: I definitely would. It's just I think you always have to have your wits about you. You have to know that these waves are out there. And I also think the last thing I would want people to do is to read this book and think I'm more scared of the ocean. I mean, I feel as though part of my purpose in writing it was so that we could understand more this great force that's so much a part of the planet that we live on. And if we understand it more, then maybe we can respect it a little bit more. Because one of the things that it seems so counterproductive is to treat the ocean like it's this other thing over there and we can dump stuff into it and we don't have to worry about understanding it. You know, what I'd like to do is shed more light onto what's going on in the darkest heart of the ocean.
14: Susan Casey's new book is called The Wave, In Pursuit of the Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean. Thank you so much, Susan.
8: Thank you.
1: That's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood. We leave you this week with a phrase of turns. Mark Seth Lender accompanied some U.S. fish and wildlife scientists to Faulkner Island during their annual nest count of common terns and the endangered roseate tern. Faulkner is located off Guilford, Connecticut, in Long Island Sound. It's one of the tern's last safe retreats. No wonder their cries sound so angry. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, and Helen Palmer, with help from Sarah Hawkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Daniel Gross, Stephanie McPherson, and Anne-Marie Singh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lerjdeen composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Steve Kerwitt is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth
4: comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and PaxWorld Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. P-R-I.